You're listening to The Diversity Podcast, a series by the Calgary Journal that looks at underexplored niches of our community. I'm your host, Lexi Freehill, and in this season of The Diversity Podcast, I'm excited to dive into the wide range of female leaders we have here in Calgary that make this city so great. We are grateful to live and work in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siksika, the Pekani, the Ghana, the Satina, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation. Today on the podcast, we have Kalea Carrington, CEO of Absolute Combustion International, and executive director of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. Kalea is an entrepreneur with a passion for business, a full-time mom, and a trailblazer for women in tech in Canada. Welcome to the Diversity Podcast, Kalea. It's really great to have you. You're my first guest, so... Yay, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me as your first. Absolutely. Could you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your career to get going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so are you kind of looking for more of those like formative years or more of what I'm up to currently? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Okay. So uh, I guess I will start back from probably the person that was most influential in my life. So before I was born, uh, my father, he was a musician. Uh, and then when him and my mom knew they were going to have kids, my dad decided that he wanted to become this like major Fortune 500 executive. I start with this story because it is very poignant for like how my life turned out. So when he was trying to figure out how to be a Fortune 500 executive, he didn't want to go back to school because he had a grade 10 education. He didn't want to work his way up the corporate ladder. He kind of wanted to find a way to like fast track it. Uh, so what he did was he kind of mapped out in Vancouver, like what do all these five, Fortune 500 CEOs have in common? And he found out ground transportation. So he's like, most of the times an executive flies in and they get concierged around, they don't drive themselves. This would be back in the 80s. So my dad uh, started his own business, had a business plan, got a loan from the bank, got his first like limousine, and then started uh, driving business executives around. By the time I was three, his business had kind of uh, gotten going. I think he must have had like three limos and a couple drivers by this point. And he started learning a lot about business. Now, the interesting thing about why this is important for me is like today we have like CEO forums and we have places where executives can kind of talk to other executives about what's going on. That wasn't really a thing back then. So my dad didn't really have anyone to talk to. So he picked me. I think I was one of those like really kind of maybe not rambunctious children. I sat down very politely and I was quiet. So it was more like he said, I know you're not going to understand what I'm telling you, but I'm going to tell you this anyway because I need someone to talk to about it. And ideally, by the time you turn you know, 21, we're going to write a business plan and go into business together. So it kind of kicked off my my mentorship in life. So he started talking to me. I don't remember a lot of the conversations, that's for sure. By the time I hit five, he had started being brought into like boardrooms from, you know, Coca-Cola CEO, things like that. So he's really making a name for himself in the concierge world. But because he was so willing to learn from them, they would bring him into all kinds of opportunities. So he realized that for me being a young lady and also being kind of a visibly a minority. He's like, I want to make sure you have every opportunity in life. He put me into etiquette training because he said, if you're going to be a young lady in business, you don't, you need to have, you need to know how to do it. So I uh, literally did that until I was like the age of 16. Uh, I was, I do not regret being in it, but I was also kind of excited when my Friday nights were not spent on like how to walk, talk and act like a lady. 
Uh, by the time I was eight, he was actually looking at potentially selling off his limousine company. And from that point, he had had me like answering phones for him, like learning how to be an assistant. He believed that phone etiquette was really important. Uh, he brought financial planners to the table. So whatever they, whatever training he got, he would bring me into to kind of, I don't know, be his little assistant or his little, me- like I was his mentee at the time. And then, yeah, by the time I was, I think about 11, he uh, sold his concierge business, which was really exciting. He had like, I think 11 or 12 limousines by that point and decided that he wanted to take all this amazing knowledge he got and learn how to become kind of like a, a business coach, so to speak. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jim Rohn, but Jim Rohn was one of the main um, mentors for Tony Robbins. So my dad and Tony Robbins were actually in the same classes with Jim Rohn. And I spent my weekends, as opposed to being in etiquette training, now I was also in uh, weekend workshops learning about business, which was also really cool. Um, I realized at a young age I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Besides, I just wanted to be in business and whatever that looked like. So fast track it, started a few companies when I was a teenager. And then, yeah, by the time I was 21, I wrote a business plan with my father and it turned into the company that I've been running ever since, which is Absolute Combustion. I, uh, and the reason we started that company specifically was because I was about to have my first child and we started listening to like Al Gore a lot around like having that um, environmental stewardship, like how are we protecting the next generation, making sure that, you know, the planet is a good place for them to live. So we decided to start a technology company. The tech had to directly benefit the environment. And in turn, if you benefit the environment, you benefit the people uh, involved in it. But you go back 15 years or longer, (laughs) you talked about clean tech and no one was interested. They're like, oh, what is this? We don't have to really do it. It just seemed expensive and encumbersome, not really needed. So it was definitely um, quite a bit of a a journey. Um, But yeah, since then, we've been able to develop out a really amazing tech, uh, commercialized it in four different industries throughout, like, you know, between the pandemic and different recessions that we've hit in the oil field. And uh, from commercializing my technology, actually, in the oil and gas industry, I had the opportunity to finally have my first female mentor. So I had a lot of male mentors up to this point, uh, like Jay Abrams, uh, Jim Rohn, um, Nito Cobain, um, George Ross, he used to be the right hand for Donald Trump. So I had amazing mentors growing up. But now I finally got to see like a, a woman in this position, which was kind of rare. I didn't meet any other women in the combustion space. And she actually helped me get my start. So she commercialized my tech. She helped me put my first deal flow together. And uh, after she she passed away, I wanted to do something that would keep her legacy going. And she had this idea that she would talk to about me about the ABC, the Alberta Blockchain Consortium. Like, how do we bring blockchain into the oil and gas industry or into all these major industries, create better efficiency, but from an environmental perspective? She was the only executive, like kind of like downtown Calgary at the time in oil and gas, who was just like, I want to create like net zero. I want to make sure that oil and gas isn't negatively impacting the planet. She saw blockchain as that potential. So after she passed away, I uh, founded the Alberta Blockchain Consortium as a not-for-profit. And uh, yeah, since then, we've actually grown into the largest industry association uh, across Canada. So always making sure that we bring up Suzanne in everything that we do. And I've been doing that for, I guess, five, six years now. In between that, I do a bunch of other things. But I guess that's kind of like my little journey into the two big things I do today. That's fantastic. Um, So I just want to backtrack a little bit. I know you mentioned Suzanne West. And um, you talk a lot about how your dad's been a big influence on you and how you've had all these male mentors. But what did it mean for you to have a female mentor in the tech industry? 
Oh my God, that was huge. Um, so it was right around the time my dad passed away. It was 2014. Um, he'd never got to see his commercial, his technology kind of like commercial and out of a lab. I was really nervous because uh, I had done a lot of helping with my dad, but never kind of taken the reins on my own. And uh, my assistant at the time convinced me to go to this women in leadership uh, networking event. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know anybody. How do I network? And I just, uh, so I was sitting in there. I uh, There's a bunch of panels. Some of them were kind of relevant. Some of them I didn't really get. But all of a sudden, this amazing woman comes in. So she literally rode her bicycle to get there, changed from khaki pants and a, a what do you call this, like a, like a top, basically, <laughs> with this crazy lion's mane, got herself into a dress, got up on stage, and all of a sudden started talking about what she called and not or. So she had done a lot of work with Richard Branson, which is absolutely incredible. And she was saying, you know, ladies, you can be a mom and a woman in business. You can be, you know, an entrepreneur and, right? So it didn't mean you had to choose. And that was a really big piece because I kind of felt like, okay, well, I'm a mom. I have kids at home. Like I'm a wife. You know, how do I balance that and, and, and be in business? And I'm a woman and no one really takes me seriously at this point, especially in the tech field and in oil and gas. <laughs> it's very, um, you know, the, the old boys club is a real thing. And especially if you're a minority and then you're a female and then you're young, it's like you have check marks against you before you even try to make your foot in the door. So hearing her speak, it was like this inspirational, impactful moment where I was like, she didn't look like me, right? Like she was, you know, crazy, beautiful, lion mane of blonde hair, you know, older female, but it was like just the fact that she was a woman. And I looked at her on stage and I was like, I am going to work with you. I do not know how, but I am going to work with you. And I just like set that intention and I made sure like I gave her my business card right after. I was like, I really feel like we're aligned with People, Planet, Profit. Like I would really love an opportunity. It took me 18 months, but I actually had a really dear friend who was like almost like a best friend with my dad, who was her chief marketing officer. His name was Manaf, and he really uh, championed me. So that was the first time I learned about having a champion inside an organization to help you get to that point. And uh, when I did get to that point, Suzanne was just like, wow. She invested directly in my company. She started her own accelerator and funded her own accelerator to commercialize my burner system. Her entire team was working on our project for getting our burner um, you know, all the way into her application and the, the studies and everything that was done there and then landed me my first major contract. I would have had 17 of these burners uh, throughout her organization and then she would have become my champion throughout the entire oil, oil and gas industry. Like, you know, imagining a kind of backed product. And it was just, it was incredible. It was like my first big break in life, I guess. And unfortunately, about two weeks after turning our burner on, uh, she got removed from her company. So she had uh, a very male-dominated um, VC fund out of New York that didn't like the direction she was taking. They didn't like that she was moving more towards clean and green and new and emerging technology and what they saw as a way from traditional oil and gas. So they actually removed her from her own company and she passed away of a very aggressive brain cancer like nine weeks later. And uh, after that, the company that came in, me and 17 other really amazing clean techs got removed from the site, contracts got canceled, they couldn't have cared less, and it went back to traditional oil and gas. So it was uh, definitely a blow, but what she taught me was probably just some of the most incredible things. And being able to finally see that like a woman can be in this position too made me strive even harder to be a woman in that position myself. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so I know you mentioned that you're, you know, co-founder and a board member for the Canadian Blockchain Association for Women. Um, so why is it so important for you to continue to, like, be that role for other women? And why is it so important to, like, keep advocating for female representation, even though, you know, you're, you're pushing the glass ceiling yourself? So I guess, um, like, a big part of that is women have this amazing opportunity. We we educate the generation. We are the ones that have the children. We're the ones that educate and nurture our children. We're the ones that a lot of times are at home having the most influence. And if you can teach a woman that she can be anything that she wants to be, then she's going to teach her children that. And the next generation are going to thrive even harder. When if you see yourself on stage, right, like the fact that Camilla Harris is like the first, you know, African-American vice president, you have a young generation of women of diverse backgrounds that look at that and go, oh, my God, I can, too. And now they're more driven. They're more motivated. They're trying even harder. They're studying. They're, they're taking political science in school where they re- originally wouldn't. Right. So the reason for even starting the, the Canadian Blockchain Association for Women and co-founding it was to really encourage that next generation in science and technology leadership. Like women make up maybe 2% in combustion. I've never met another one. And in the blockchain space, women were making up, you know, very, very similar, same kind of numbers. I also vice chair and set the board for a group called Elevate Aviation. We have 5% female representation in more technical careers in aviation. If we don't start showing women that they can do it, there's other women who are, you know, paving that path forward and encouraging them to to, to take up those arms, we're going to leave it to be male-dominated. And women do make up like 50 to 51% of the population. Our federal government said if we can close that gender gap, if we can get 50-50% representation male-to-female in the workspace, we're going to open up over a $560 billion just in GDP alone. Women are the economic drivers, we're the educators, we're the community builders, we're the nurturers. So we need women to show women, you know, what they're capable of. Absolutely. I think that's very well said. And I know that um, that kind of GDP gap, um, that's a big focus of the Alberta Women Entrepreneurs Organization, which is how I first heard about you and your story. So what does Alberta Women Entrepreneurs mean to you and why are those initiatives so important? You know, the thing I deeply love about AWE and uh, Marcella, their CEO, is just a phenomenal woman and, and a champion, is that women make up maybe 2% of the VC funding. They make up a, a bit larger of a margin in, in the bank funding, but not by a huge amount. So having an organization that's specifically focused on making sure that women op- entrepreneurs, women's, women business owners, women leaders have the access to the funding needed to be able to move their businesses forward is a big part of being able to close that gap. And being able to focus on also just the, the minorities as well. Like I won their their first ever like Indigenous Entrepreneur of the Year award. They're focusing on Indigenous. They're focusing on the LGBTQ. They're focusing on the minorities. They're trying to make sure that we give the tools and the resources. And it's not just through funding. They do educational programs. They're advocacy. They engage all across the community from the ecosystem development, the international level of development. They engage in, in other events. Actually, how I even got to really know about AWE was I was the regional ambassador for women's entrepreneurship here in Calgary and she was a regional ambassador in Edmonton and we put on these events called WIDO which was women's 
Women Entrepreneurship Day, <laughs> basically. And it was the very first event that happened like that in Canada. And we were able to get a proclamation to make November 17th, like Women Entrepreneurship Day here. And uh, after seeing kind of like her leadership and her organization, I was like, God, I'd love to work with you. So when they got, had an opening for board members, I was like, I want to be that champion for you on your board and encourage like more women. And right now my kind of position on that board is like, hey, what are we currently doing in terms of funding women tech leaders, right? Like, can we increase that? Can we put, a, you know, like a mandate or a five-year plan together to say, okay, we're, say, at 5%, let's let's push it up to 15 and 20% because technology is what's going to drive business forward to the next generation. Let's focus on those technology leaders that are going to help and create that tomorrow. Yeah, and just open up the floor to, you know, not only women, but people from, you know, diverse intersectional backgrounds, so Absolutely. can you speak a little bit more to that? Like how has being an indigenous woman in like such a male dominated industry, like how has that affected your view of it? Uh, well, so my, my background is actually quite diverse. Like my father was predominantly black, partly indigenous and a little Irish. And my mother was French and indigenous and some Spanish. So I have indigenous kind of on both both sides of the heritage. Um, so growing up, it was really interesting in terms of not really understanding exactly where I came from. So I don't, I never really fit in any one culture. I wasn't black enough for for the black family. I wasn't you know indigenous enough for the indigenous community. I wasn't white enough <laughs> for the Caucasian community, right? Like I never really fit anywhere. So I, um, the one thing I did for myself, I would say, was I never considered it a limitation or a barrier. I just looked at myself more as being Canadian. So I know a lot of, I've heard people complain like, oh, you know, because I'm a minority, I can't get anywhere. And it's just like, okay, well, use it as your opportunity, right? Like you have a diverse perspective. You have a unique background. Like absolutely have I had racial insults hurled plenty of times. Have I not gotten opportunities because I didn't look a certain way? Absolutely. But I never used them as that thing that kept me back and pushed me down. I always was like, all right, that just means I need to be smarter. That just means I need to work harder. That just means I need to, you know, try a bit further. And now what I'm seeing today is almost this like dramatic shift in like the conscious thinking of, oh, well now we need to be like extra careful with the minority groups, right? And I've and now instead of, instead of not having the opportunities because I was that, now they're explicitly telling me, oh, well, we need to have diversity and inclusion. And uh, you are a female minority in the tech space. Uh, do you have any LGBTQ? Because these are the boxes we need to tick for you to come sit on our board. And it's like, this is really fun. It's, it's freaking insulting either which way you look at it. And it's like, wow, guys, like now you want me because I tick these boxes but because the social awareness has changed, but your social awareness hasn't changed to understand how you're asking for me to come because I check these boxes is actually completely disrespectful. One of the things that I push really hard with women is like, all right, every time I do a conference, when I do events, I try and make sure that we have at least 50% female representation and don't talk about it. Because the second you say, oh, look, the first female CEO, it's like, okay, so it's not because she was the best human being. It's not because she was the best in her field. It's literally because she was the best of who had ovaries and you overlooked the men is how the perception happens. It's the same thing when you go first female black CEO of a blah, blah, blah. It's like, again, now you're adding all these different like prefaces to the fact that she got it because she was black and a woman, 
not because she was a leader in her field, instead of just introducing, and the newest CEO to this organization, you know, an absolute leader, and, and citing her accomplishments, right? So I would like to see that next wave of change where people stop having to say, oh, look, it's because you're gay. Oh, look, it's because you're brown. I really don't like the word diversity specifically because of the fact that, to me, it actually creates wider separation. It's like, okay, so we need the diversity box on ethnicity, the diversity box on sex, the diversity box on religion, the reverse, the diversity box on like, see where I'm going with it. You're, you're, you're separating people into boxes. So inclusion is much better. It's like, okay, we're including everyone in society. This is an inclusive organization. Our inclusive CEO, something like just the, the verbiage is very important, but they have to re-educate people on why the term diversity is not actually a good thing. You want them to be profiled because they're the best. If there's a man who's the best, put him in that position. Don't overlook him because you want to make sure you have like a black female in that position because you've now undermined her ability to do her job at the best because people are going to think, well, you weren't really good. You just, you got there because you checked some boxes, which also creates additional racism. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the biggest things is that like there just seems to be, you know, two separate fields of vision where it's like these are the qualified candidates and these are the diversity candidates where in reality, like it should all be one, you know, you shouldn't have to close your eyes to one to see the other, but you know, everybody should be included in that kind of initial, the choosing ground, right? Absolutely. Cause there's a lot of pre-existing bias that comes in. Like interesting life, even when I was choosing my children's names, I was like, okay, I want to make sure that just upon reading the name, you don't create a pre-existing bias. Because uh, like 15% of candidates get immediately turned away for having a difficult to pronounce name. They're like, oh, well, this person can't speak English. Oh, this person probably smells funny. Like the, that ignorance of pre-existing bias just based on a name is something that it's hard to overcome, especially in a digital economy where everything that you're doing is you're sending your resume out electronically. So now it's like you don't even have that opportunity to say, I speak fluent English. I was born here. Like I am, you know, by amazing hygiene. I am an amazing, I'm a perfect person for this opportunity. But automatically, it's like, and people don't even realize that they're biased. They're more likely to hire someone that looks like them. So even in your HR, how are you accounting for who you're putting as your HR specialist? Is it a person who's diverse to make sure that everyone gets an opportunity? Right? Are you making sure that there's no pre-existing bias just based on hiring practices in a business? It's like little things like that, or the fact that would you make a business check that make a person check a box if they're going to apply to a business? It's like male, female, other. Just something like that right there by making someone identify themselves automatically creates segregation. Why should I have to identify? What's the relevance? Yeah. Aren't the, you know, qualifications good enough? So we have one time for one last question, and I just wanted to touch on the fact that you uh, welcome volunteers to get in touch with you on your website. So what kind of advice do you offer for those just starting out in business, and do you have any special advice for women entering entrepreneurship? Oh, my special advice for women entering entrepreneurship, um, as Arlene Dickinson said it best, may all women have the confidence of a middle-aged white male. Because a man will look at a, a, a requisition requirement, sorry, ugh, I'm stumbling over my words, on a resume and be like, oh, I, I hit like four to five of the, the 10 boxes, I'll go apply. Because they have the confidence to be like, eh, if I don't know it, I'll figure it out. Women, oh my God, I only hit nine of the 10 boxes, they're never going to take me. So ladies, please 
have that confidence. You are competent, you are capable, you know, and, and don't take no for an answer, right? Like if someone rejects you, that's just an opportunity for someone else to say yes, right? So, you know, building that kind of skin, recognizing that you are absolutely worth it, put yourselves out there, develop out that confidence in, in any which way you need to, like join in on those women leadership groups or those, you know, mom forums. I just, I got invited to one recently where it was like these, uh, you know, moms in business that want to share their stories about, you know, it's, it's been difficult creating that community so you can get that support of women going, yes, you can do it, like whatever you need to do there. And if you're starting out in business, my advice is very much the same. You know, you're probably going to get a thousand no's, but all it takes is that one yes. And if you take every single no as this, you know, impactful moment of I can't do it, I'm not enough, then you're never going to get to that next level. I've been, I've been rejected more times than I like to count, like really. And, it, <laughs> and every time I do, I'm like, all right, next. You, you get used to it after a while. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for, you know, having this conversation with me. Again, even if it's just, you know, a handful of people that that get that advice, that really hear it, that it like matters and it does for them what it did for you. So thank you, Kalea. Thank you. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of the Diversity Podcast. The music you heard was Jolly Snowy Night by Sky Jordan. Thanks for listening, and remember to head to thecalgaryjournal.ca to check out the next episodes of Diversity, featuring other Calgary women in leadership and more.